Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Very encouraged by many visitors that we have among us. I'm encouraged that our visitors are bringing visitors, and they're bringing visitors. Uh, it's very, very uplifting to us here. I want to encourage everybody to continue to reach out to those who you know in the community, to invite them here, uh, to, to be with us, to share and studying God's Word together. I want to start off today by asking the question, how strong of a Christian do you want to be? How, how do you answer a, a question like that? Is, is there anybody here who would say, well, I, you know, I would really like to be a mediocre Christian? Well, none of us would say that. None of us would say, well, I, I, I just don't want to be too strong or too weak. I just want to kind of drift along in the middle. Now, all of us recognize we, we want to be the strongest Christians that we can be, the strongest servants of the Lord. No, nobody comes out of the waters of baptism eager to be a half-hearted Christian or, or a lukewarm disciple. And yet, too often, that's where we end up. Why is that? Well, it's not because that's what we aimed for. It's not that because that's what our, our goal was, but despite our spiritual goals, to, to be the best Christian, the best disciple that we can be to God's glory, many times those goals get crowded out and suppressed by what we perceive as the more pressing concerns of day-to-day -day life. Uh, all our time and energy, our, our drive and passion can be sapped away by our, our work, and our school, running errands, our other hobbies, recreation, entertainment. And our service to the Lord can seem more like a chore at that point. It's just another thing on our to-do list, and very often it gets pushed back by the more concrete, tangible, measurable things of day-to-day -day life. How do we change that? How do we overcome that? How do we have the type of passion and devotion to the Lord that, that we would all acknowledge we want to have? Well, we, we could say, well, put your, your time with the Lord first thing in the morning. First thing when you get up, before you do any of those other things, spend time with the Lord. Well, there, there's probably a lot of, of truth and, and help to that. Maybe we could say, well, set, set aside time. Write it down on your schedule book. Take out a block of time to spend in, in prayer and devotion and, and reading God's Word. Get some accountability, start a reading plan, start keeping a prayer list. We, we can think of a lot of practical things that might help us in, in putting that first. But I, I think to some extent that's just treating the symptoms rather than addressing the problem. Because as long as our service to the Lord is just another thing on our to-do list next to the dishes and laundry, then we're going to be fighting a losing battle. First and foremost, if we want to have the type of passion in our service to the Lord, if we want to be the type of, of strong Christian to the glory of God that we aim to be, we need to address the heart. You know, if the only reason I ever spent time with Erin was because I had the forethought to write her in on my schedule and the discipline to keep that appointment, I wouldn't have a very strong relationship with Erin, would I? Yes, do those practical things, but where it needs to start is by rekindling the passion in our hearts for God. Rekindling our love for him. We need to stop just focusing on going through the motions and start cultivating the type of motivation that God desires of us. And that's what I want us to consider today. How can we develop a genuine passion for God? How do you do that? Well, it starts 
by, as we already mentioned, cultivating our hearts. We need to stop measuring our spirituality simply on how faithful we are in our church attendance or how well we know our Bible or how morally conservative we appear to the world around us. Not that those things are not important, but that's not the core of the issue. Failing in those areas may very well be an indication of a a weak and failing faith, but succeeding in those areas doesn't necessarily mean our heart is where it needs to be. We need to stop measuring ourselves in that way and start focusing in on the heart. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, we see this is part of the problem with the children of Israel. Even back in the Old Testament, God says to his people, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by reverence. They're just going through the motions. They don't have a genuine reverence and and love and devotion for God. They're just doing these acts of worship because, well, that's what we've always done. That's what our fathers taught us. That's what it means to to be a Jew. We, We worship in this way. We make these sacrifices. And yet it was empty. They're going through the motions and their heart was not in. In the New Testament, when Jesus quotes from that in Matthew 15, he says their worship is worthless. We need to make sure, first and foremost, that we're focusing in on our hearts, our attitude, our inner man. In Matthew 23, Jesus says the same thing of the Pharisees. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. It's not that we don't want to clean the outside. It's not that the outward acts of our service to the Lord are unimportant. But he says that's that's not where it starts. We need to get first things first. We need to clean the inside, our hearts, so that the outside may become genuinely clean as well. We need to work on transforming our hearts before anything else. Matthew 22, just a chapter earlier, Jesus, when asked what was the greatest command in the law, what did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says, on this depends all the law and the prophets, that and our love for our fellow man. This is square one. If we don't get this right, If we don't have this genuine devotion and love within our hearts for the Lord, it doesn't matter what else we get. It doesn't matter how much lip service we give. It doesn't matter how sound our doctrine is. It doesn't matter how well I know my Bible or how consistent I am in my church attendance. If my heart is not truly devoted to the Lord, all of that is in vain. It makes no difference. We need to make sure our hearts are fully devoted to the Lord, because God doesn't just want our service. He wants us. And in making this point, I think it's helpful to to clarify that this is not a cop-out. It's not that we can be morally permissive and loose and reckless about doctrine, negligent in our commitment to the assembly, and say, well, my heart's in the right place, and I I love God. That's not how it works. Notice here Jesus says, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. So that. That sounds like a purpose statement. And so 
we recognize that it needs to start with our hearts. It needs to start with transforming our hearts. And if it doesn't start there, everything else is not. But that is where it starts. That's not where it finishes. And so we need to recognize that if our heart is in the right place, yes, it is going to show in a transformed and sanctified life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Our hearts are the fountainhead. That's where it starts. The heart is where the battle is going to be won or lost. But the battle still has to be fought. You think about it this way, if, if you want to send a rocket to the moon, you better spend a whole lot of time and energy and effort at the drawing board. You better make sure you know your physics. You better get your math right. But at the end of the day, you haven't succeeded until that rocket is on the landing pad and kicks on the rocket thrusters and goes to the moon. And so in the same way for us, we need to put a whole lot of focus and effort and diligence into cultivating our hearts so that we may live the type of transformed and holy life that God desires of us. I don't want to downplay the importance of the outward aspects of our service to the Lord, but I want us to realize that if it's going to mean anything, it has to start with our hearts. If we are truly going to be who God wants us to be, we have to first cultivate our inner man, our attitude, our hearts towards him. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate our hearts? What I want us to do today is to look at the words of David in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, we're going to see this man after God's own heart pouring out his heart to the Lord. I want us to ask the question, where did David's passion come from? What fueled the fires of his praise for God? I'm going to start in Psalm 145, if you'd like to turn there. I think if we're going to cultivate our hearts this passion for the Lord, one place that it needs to start is by growing in our reverence and our honor to him. Here in Psalm 145, notice what David says. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Why? Verse 2, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Why? Verse 3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Where, where is David's praise coming from here? He says, I'm going to praise him all the time. I'm going to extol him. I'm going to praise him forever and ever because he is great, because of who God is. Is. Notice there in verse 5, I want us to focus on this verse. He says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Why was David so passionate in his praise for the Lord? Because he had been cultivating within his heart and within his mind an appreciation for the majesty of God's glory, an appreciation for the mightiness of God's works. If we want to cultivate a passion for God, we need to spend some time thinking about who God is. How, how do we meditate on the glorious splendor of God's majesty? None of us have ever seen God. None of us have ever come in contact with his glory and its fullness face to face. I think one thing that we can do is to go to the scriptures and see the accounts of those who did encounter God. 
and see what, what they saw and their reaction. There are multiple cases where we see this throughout the scriptures. I want to look at just a few. We've started studying in the book of Job, and at the end of the book of Job, when God finally comes and answers Job's accusations against him, Job's questions of God, it says that God comes in a whirlwind. I think Elihu kind of describes this whirlwind at the end of his speech, coming in, in the darkness and thickness of the cloud and thundering and lightning. And here, God Almighty comes in this storm, in this whirlwind, and approaches Job and begins to question him. You know, have you ever been in a, a job interview and been kind of intimidated? Well, maximize that by a hundred, <laughs> by a thousand. Here, Almighty God is asking questions to Job and expecting him to provide answers. And what does Job's react in Job 40 and verse 4? Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Here we see Job's reaction to the glory and the power of God. It's a very similar reaction to what we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6 and verse 5. Isaiah here sees this vision uh, of the Lord in all his glory, sitting upon his throne, lofty and exalted. His robe fills the temple. He's being praised by seraphim, saying, holy, holy, holy. And the, the ground, the foundations of the temple begin to shake, and it fills with smoke. And what's Isaiah's reaction? It says, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is that how we feel in our relationship to God? You know, God in his grace and his mercy has offered himself to us as a loving father. But we need to also remember that he is the almighty creator of the universe. He is the sovereign Lord, the King of kings. We need to appreciate who he is. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel encounters God's glory. And for a full chapter, for over 20 verses, it describes the throne on which God is sitting and the creatures carrying that throne. Uh, it describes these four living creatures who have four faces each and they are, are flying with, with their wings and covering their bodies. And there are these wheels uh, with eyes within and without, and, and it's revolving around, and we have this flaming fire that's darting back and forth. And, and then you get up to the throne, and it's described with a, a great glorious splendor and, and precious jewels. And then after all these 20 verses of describing what God is riding on, we have two verses describing in a very tentative way the glory of Almighty God. And at the end of this, in verse 28, Ezekiel says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Something indescribable, something that, that he can't even put into words, and that he didn't even experience to its fullness, causes him to fall on his face before the Lord. Ezekiel wasn't the last one to fall on his face before the Lord, was he? You can read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, John's vision of the majesty of the glory of the Lord. Here, John sees 
Christ in his eyes as a, a flame of fire, his feet as burnished bronze, a sword coming out of his mouth, his voice like many waters. And it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Brethren, we need to come to appreciate the glory and majesty of the God that we serve. And when we come to worship him, when we approach his word, we need to be reminded of who that God is. He's the God who created all things. He's the God who has all power, who has all wisdom, who has all authority. And we can read about those things. We can try to imagine those things. And I think that's a very healthy thing for us to do, to meditate upon the glory of God's splendor. But we don't see that face to face, do we? So in addition to meditating upon those things, here in Psalm 145, he also says, I meditate upon your wonderful works. And as well, we can do that within the scriptures. We can look at God sending the ten plagues upon Egypt. We can read about him parting the Red Sea, causing the walls of Jericho to fall down. We can read about Jesus healing the lame and the blind, raising from the dead. But I think also we can take some time in our own lives to go out and see the mighty acts of God, the creator of this world in which we live. So often, day by day, we, we are surrounded by the creation of men. We're going in and out of buildings, driving these machines made by men. And yet we need to take some time, purposefully take some time to meditate upon the wonder of God's creation. If we want to cultivate a deeper passion for the Lord, take a vacation for the sole purpose of meditating upon God's mighty works. Take some time to go out in the middle of nowhere, to look up at the night sky to see the glory of God's creation. Take some time to go out to, to see the ocean and all its expanse and its depth and its power. Take some time to, to see the beauty of God's creation in the sunset and the hues that he has created within those clouds. Take some time to go out in the woods, see the plants and animals that God has created. Or even just look at your children with purpose. To see the glory that God has created in them. Look at your own hands. Look at your body. See what God has created. And stand in awe of your creator. You want to develop a deeper passion for the Lord. Take some time to think about God's power. The glory that radiates from him. The glory that he has created for us. But in addition to cultivating a deeper reverence for the God that we serve, we need to grow in our gratitude towards him. Turn to Psalm 103. Here again we see David passionately praising the Lord, but notice his focus this time. Psalm 103, starting in verse 1, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Here, as David starts out this psalm, he says, let me forget none of the blessings that God has given. We just sang that song earlier, and I appreciate Mike leading. Count your many blessings. 
What David is saying as he starts this psalm of praise to the Lord is, is don't let me forget even one thing that you have created. Don't let one blessing go unnoticed or unappreciated. David's motivation to worship and bless God is a reminiscence of all the ways that God had first blessed him. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. When we think about God's love for us, what God has done for us, we cultivate a deeper gratitude for him. That is going to help fuel the fires of that passion and zeal for him. James 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of life. There is not a single good thing that we experience in this life that does not owe its, its full credit to God. Now, we, we may have corrupted some of those good things. We may find joy and pleasure in a corruption of God's good creation. But, but the joy itself is ultimately only due to the fact that God created that joy, that God created that pleasure. Satan can't create that. He can corrupt it, but he can't produce it. We need to give God the glory for all the joy, all the comfort, all the fulfillment that we experience in this life. As David goes on here in Psalm 103, he continues to speak to his soul. He says in verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Who is the you that David's talking to? Himself. His own soul. I think maybe sometimes we need to stop and have a little talk with ourselves and remind ourselves what God has done for us and his great mercy and his grace his abundant goodness on our behalf if we skip down to verse 10 through 14 i think we also see the goodness of god on the backdrop of our unworthiness in verse 10 it says he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Over time, we can become so familiar with God's blessings and what he has provided for us in this earth that they begin to lose their significance in our mind. And we begin to think that these are just things that we deserve and that are our right. That we deserve the, the air that we breathe. That we deserve the, the food that we eat. That we d deserve the, the heart that is able to pump blood through our veins. We need to be reminded that we don't deserve even a single thing. That ultimately all of these things came from God. And when our trials come, we need to take those as opportunities to remind ourselves that, as Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When I am robbed of my health, when I am robbed of my comfort or my possessions, it's really not me being robbed. It's, it's God, if he wills, taking back what was rightfully his to begin with. And so we need to see God's goodness on the backdrop of our unworthiness. And the greatest demonstration of God's blessing and God's goodness to us 
is Jesus upon the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, tells us that while we were still helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners and enemies of Christ, Jesus died for our behalf. I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 through 8 describes to us what Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. It says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest gift that God has ever given us is his son. And Jesus' sacrifice didn't begin when the first nail was driven into his hands. Jesus' sacrifice began when he left his home in heaven. He left his glory to come down to become a man, to take on flesh and blood. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he was willing to let go of his equality with God, in a sense. You know, man, in Genesis chapter 3, reached out to try to make himself equal with God. Jesus willingly lets go of his equality so that he might save us. I mean, to think about it this way. If one of you were in a car crash, and suddenly you lost all use of your arms and your legs, you were no longer able to feed yourself, no longer able to clothe yourself, no longer able to take care of yourself in any way. Would you feel like you had lost a lot? Would that be difficult? I want you to think a moment about the creator of the universe leaving his home in heaven, his glory with God to become a little child who couldn't feed himself, who couldn't clothe himself, who couldn't take care of himself. We need to come to appreciate what God has given for us, what he was willing to sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice didn't end there either, but he lived a life of humility, of service. He didn't just become a man, he became a bondsman. And he became obedient. The creator of the universe became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. If you want to come to appreciate what God has done for you, if you want to cultivate a gratitude and a passion for the Lord, think about the cross. Think about how the creator of the universe allowed himself to have his, his hands pierced, to hang upon a cross. The creator of the universe is allowing his life to bleed away. Allowing himself to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be beaten, so that I could be saved. Brethren, there's a reason that we are instructed to remember Jesus' death every first day of the week. Because if we want to cultivate a genuine devotion and passion for the Lord, we need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. And how dare we treat the Lord's Supper as some checklist item? How dare we treat it as something that we just need to go through the motions, get it done? We are remembering the greatest gift that God has ever given us. We are remembering the death 
of our Savior and our Creator? Do we want a deeper passion for God? Take some time to appreciate Jesus' passion for you. But thirdly, in addition to cultivating a deeper reverence, to cultivating a deeper gratitude, we need to grow in our intimacy with the Lord. We need to cultivate a deeper relationship with God. The more that we spend time with Him, the more we will desire to spend time with Him. Think about it this way. Aaron and I do a lot of traveling. And we love to go visit our family. We love to go see my parents, my other siblings, Aaron's sister and their family, because we have a relationship with them. Uh, And we treasure that time together with them because of that relationship that we share. But there have been times in the past where I go to some family reunion where I really don't have much of a relationship with a lot of these people. Uh, And I I am thankful for the opportunity to interact with them, but, but there's not quite as much passion or excitement about driving to this family reunion to see my great-aunt Hilda. I don't think I have a great-aunt Hilda, but why is that? Well, that's because I don't have a relationship with them. I I don't have that type of intimacy with them. And I get much more excited about going to see my parents and those that I am close to because I have taken the time to cultivate that type of relationship. Sometimes the reason that we're not passionate in our service to the Lord is because we haven't put a whole lot of time into cultivating a relationship with Him. And He's more of a stranger to us. We need to put the time and the work and the effort in to cultivating that relationship so that we might continue to grow in our passion for the Lord. And when we look through the Psalms, David often links his relationship with the Lord, with his love and his passion and his desire to praise the Lord. Consider Psalm 18. Here in verse 1 and 2, David starts out by saying, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. To David, God was not a rock. He was not a stronghold. He was not a fortress. He was my rock and my stronghold, my fortress. David had a relationship with the Lord that fueled his passion and his love for the Lord. Look again in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 and verse 4. David says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Down in verse 8, again, he says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. What did David desire above all else? He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord. What is it? If you had, if you had to ask one thing from God, what would you ask for? You know, would we ask for... Uh, length of life? Would we ask for for wealth? Would we ask for wisdom? Not that any of those within themselves would be wrong, but what does David ask? He says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And to behold the beauty of the Lord. When you said to me, seek my face, I said, Lord, your face I'm going to seek. God doesn't just want us to seek his stuff. He doesn't just want us to seek his blessings. He wants us to seek him, a relationship with him, fellowship with him. 
And David here, when he's talking about the house of the Lord, isn't talking about heaven. Really, he's talking about the temple, this place of, of worship and devotion to the Lord. He, he is desiring this time to spend in God's presence to worship. Is that what we desire? Look in Psalm 63 that John read for us. Notice how David starts this psalm. He says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is that our attitude? We need to be able to say, God, you are my God. What a glorious statement that is. By God's grace, he can be our God, our Father. We can have a relationship with him. We need to thirst and long for him. And throughout the scriptures, this is what we see. That we need to make sure we don't just have a passion for God's stuff, but we have a passion for him. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a warder of those who diligently seek him. What are we diligently seeking? him a relationship with god and acts chapter 3 and verse 19 as peter is preaching to the people there he instructs them repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord we want to be in god's presence we want to have god's spirit dwell within us and the spirit in the new testament wasn't just about enabling them to to do miraculous things what it was about the main point of that is that we can have fellowship with God, that we can have God dwelling in us, that God can be with us. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul, after he says that he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, he has kept the faith, in verse 8, he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What do we love? We love his appearing. And heaven is not about having some great mansion. It's not about, you know, gold and, and pearls and jewels and God giving me everything that I've always wanted. What is heaven about? Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. Here John describes to us his view of this, this new city, this heavenly Jerusalem. It says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What's the focus there? God's going to be with them. We're going to be in the presence of Almighty God, the source of all good things. And he continues in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brethren, if, if we're serving God simply because we don't want to go to hell, that's going to be ultimately a fairly empty service to you. If we're serving God just because we want him to give us heaven, that's not going to fuel the type of passion that God desires for us. The type of passion that God desires is a passion that is fueled by simply a desire to 
pleased him. To be in his presence. To give him glory. We need to be seeking not just God's stuff. We need to be seeking him. How are you doing in your service to the Lord? Would you say that you are a passionate Christian? That you are a fully devoted Christian? Or have you drifted into the category of the half-hearted, the lukewarm, the mediocre? If you want to cultivate a deeper passion for the Lord, we need to stop just focusing on the outward things. We need to start focusing on cultivating our hearts, meditating upon God's glory, upon His majesty, upon His great acts of power. We need to meditate upon His goodness, His gifts to us, His sacrifice upon the cross. And we need to cultivate a deeper relationship with Him. If you recognize today that you have fallen short in some area that you need to change right now. Know that in God's grace, He wants to welcome you back. He wants to help transform your heart. He wants to cultivate fires of that zeal and that passion within you. And if you're willing to fully surrender your life to Him, you're willing to make whatever change it is that He desires of you, know that God has the power to transform your life. If there's some way that you need to confess some sin in your life, commit your life to the Lord for the first time, if there's some way that you need the prayers of these brethren, if you need our help to get back on the track that God wants you to be on, we want to help you in that. That's why we're here. And so as we sing this song, if there's some change that you need to make, make it. If there's some change that we can help you make, we ask that you let us know at this time as we sing.